Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 48. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I want to talk with you about the faithfulness of God. I want us to see something of the God who holds on to us. The God who doesn't let us go. Ever. As this morning, we reflected on the passing away of Rita Houston. A person who has meant so much, first of all, for her husband Jim, but who has also shown the face of God to many others of us at Regent College, we cannot but recognize the faithfulness of God in the life of a person who gave so much of herself. Literally thousands of students know of the faithfulness of God through Rita Houston. But that was Rita's life. What about her death? Nothing tests our trust in the faithfulness of God as much as death. Isn't it the ultimate refutation of God's faithfulness? When our loved ones die, we are forced to let them go. They're no longer here with us. And sometimes we wonder, when our loved ones die, is God too forced to let them go? This morning's passage answers that question with an emphatic no. Even in the face of death, God is faithful. He never lets us go. Today's passage is most remarkable, both for the ingenuity of the Sadducees and for, their def- for the defense of the resurrection that Jesus offers in response. His rejoinder is what we're really interested in this morning. But to understand it, we have to see how it is that the Sadducees are trying to stump Jesus. They present us with this strange story. 
A story about seven brothers, no less, each of them marrying the same woman in turn, in hopes of somehow producing a child for their brother. But each of them dying before they're able to do so. And in the end, the woman herself also passing away. To understand why the Sadducees are telling this story, we need to know two things. First, for the Pharisees, only the five books of Moses are authoritative. The other Old Testament books may be of interest, but you're not going there to see what you should and should not believe. Much less are you going to turn to later tradition for that. For the Sadducees, it is a radical sort of sola scriptura that's in play. Only the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, lie at the basis of what we ought to believe and of how we ought to live. Second, this means that the Sadducees are minimalists in terms of the doctrines they do and do not hold. Since life after death doesn't really seem to show up in the books of Moses, they don't believe either in an immortal soul that lives on after death or in a resurrection of the body at the end of time. Both of these ideas are out for the Sadducees. So they try to show Jesus the foolishness of his belief and that of the Pharisees in the resurrection from the dead. Their master stroke is this concoction of a story. Just a few verses in our Bibles, but in real life, taking many, many years to play itself out. The Sadducees play their game on home turf. They're basing their story on the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 25.5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. We know this kind of marriage Deuteronomy 25 is talking about as leveret marriage. The Latin word lever meaning a husband's brother. If the husband were to die childless, his brother, the lever, would have the duty to marry the widow. That way the widow might still bear a child, perhaps a firstborn son, and the little boy would then continue the dead brother's name and lineage. Now clearly, the Sadducees' story is absurd. It would never actually happen that seven brothers would each marry the same woman, only for each of them to leave her childless. Still, even absurd examples can be enlightening. On some occasions, it is especially absurd examples that are enlightening. And that would seem to be the case here. The obvious purpose of the story is to show that the whole idea of resurrection is nonsensical. That death actually does have the final say. If we're going to accept resurrection, 
we would have to explain what this will look like for someone who's had more than one spouse in his or her life. All the more so if there haven't been just two, but seven spouses in play during the course of one's life. Imagine the weird situation at the end of time with this woman looking her seven husbands in the eye. Wondering whose wife she might possibly be. Deuteronomy 25 clearly does hold open the possible scenario of a woman legitimately having had more than one husband during her lifetime. The conclusion seems evident enough. The five books of Moses don't just ignore the topic of resurrection. They positively exclude such teaching. It's an open and shut case. If you just think through the consequences of the belief in resurrection, you quickly come to see how ludicrous the idea really is. Now before we turn to Jesus' response, we might just want to let the weight of the Sadducees' dilemma sink in for a moment. The difficulty they present us with is one that we face too. We no longer have leveret marriage. Thank God some of you are saying. But we do have people remarrying after the death of their spouse. We have situations of divorce and remarriage. Either way, how do you rhyme that with belief in the resurrection? Remember, just because the story of the Sadducees is an outlandish one, that doesn't make it any less compelling. It's so compelling, in fact, that we would do well to spend some time thinking about how we can square belief in resurrection with the reality of multiple marriage partners. Jesus' answer comes in two parts. In both of the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, Jesus responds to the Sadducees by insisting, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now I like to think that in the first part of his answer, Jesus focuses on the power of God part. The Sadducees don't know the power of God. For God, resurrection is possible, Jesus says, because the marital links that we have here today don't apply in the hereafter. We'll be like the angels, Jesus plainly says. And it's because we will be like them that we don't need to worry that Deuteronomy 25 is going to render resurrection impossible. No, not at all. God, says Jesus, is a faithful God. Clearly, The Sadducees don't know the power of God to affect a new reality in the hereafter. But that is just the negative side. Up till now, Jesus has simply shown that Moses' regulation doesn't actually have to exclude the possibility of resurrection. But now Jesus goes on to show also the positive. Moses' law doesn't just leave open 
the possibility of resurrection, it positively teaches it. Now this is an eye popper. And I want us to get a sense of just how revolutionary Jesus must have sounded to the Sadducees at this point. Remember, for them, resurrection is out of the question, in part because it's just not there anywhere in the law of Moses. With that, they had solid ground, so they thought. They knew the scriptures. If the Pharisees wanted to argue for the resurrection, well, they'd have to go to some other books of the Old Testament or to some oral tradition. But Moses' law clearly didn't teach resurrection from the dead. With that, the Pharisees would simply be forced to agree. So what does Jesus do? He moves from the one passage of Moses' law, Deuteronomy 25, to another, Exodus chapter 3. It's the passage of the burning bush. God says there to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, it is this passage that shows that Moses actually positively teaches that the dead will rise. That in fact, they're alive right now with God. Now again, our first inclination may be to protest, right? Jesus' evidence seems not to the point. How is this passage even remotely relevant to the debate? Jesus' evidence seems out of place. Still, his words do make a significant impact. Some of the scribes, and we know from earlier on in the chapter that they're not particularly favorable toward Jesus, some of the scribes are forced to admit, Teacher, you have spoken well. The end of our passage. What is it that makes them admit, that makes them recognize the force of Jesus' words? Let's turn for a moment to the passage of the burning bush. Here God calls Moses to become the leader of his people. When Moses sees the bush on fire, without it burning up, God calls to him from the bush, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. He then adds, verse 6, The words that Jesus is quoting. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hides his face, afraid to look at God. The question of who God is, the character of his identity, runs throughout the chapter. It climaxes in verse 14. Moses is afraid of being sent to Pharaoh. And he's fearful even of his own fellow Israelites. Would they accept him as their leader? If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. They ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? The Lord then reveals his identity to Moses. 3 verse 14. I am who I am. 
And he adds, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God then reiterates his link with the Israelites' ancestors. Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Very next verse, we read the same thing once again. When God tells Moses to say to the Israelite elders, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me. Three times. Verses 6, 15, and 16. God links his name, Yahweh, the Lord in capital letters, I am who I am. He links that to the fact that he's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The point is, just as God was faithful to them long ago, so God will be faithful also (laughs) to the Israelites today. You can set your alarm on it. God has seen the affliction of his people. He has heard their cry. He knows their suffering. And what has he done now? He has come down. This God is a faithful God. He's a God you can count on. God's self-identification. I am the God of your father. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. His self-identification is a confidence booster, both for Moses and for the oppressed Israelites. God is not just a God of power. He is also a God of faithfulness. All good and well, you say, but we don't read anywhere here that the dead will rise We don't read in God's words to Moses anything intimating resurrection. Certainly nothing in Exodus 3 states what Jesus says in verse 38 of our chapter, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive right now. That they live to him. How does Jesus arrive at this conclusion? Remember Jesus' words. You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What is at stake is the Sadducees' ignorance of the scriptures. They claim the law of Moses as their own. They're radical sola scriptura people. But they really don't know the scriptures. Now, of course, in some ways they do. No doubt they know the story of the burning bush. No doubt they know that it says that I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But in a deeper sense, they really don't know the story of the burning bush. They don't know what God is saying with these words, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The Sadducees suffer from a stifled imagination. All they can go by is, What the words on the page literally say. All they have is the surface meaning of the text. 
But Jesus takes us beyond the surface level to a deeper spiritual meaning of the passage. Now it's not that with a sleight of hand Jesus changes the meaning of the text. It's also not that he puts into the passage of the burning bush something that wasn't already there. No, the imagination that Jesus puts to work is an imagination that lies deeply anchored in the text, in the very words on the page, and more importantly, it's an imagination directly based on who God is. God has not only the power to raise people from the dead, Remember the warning to the Sadducees, you don't know the power of God. He also has the faithfulness to raise them from the dead. To see that, and to see why it is that the faithfulness of God's character means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive with God even today, you need to read Exodus 3 in ways you may not have read it before. Scripture speaks here of the character of a God whose faithfulness reaches far beyond the Sadducees' imagination. When God says, I am, he declares himself faithful. The confidence booster that I mentioned is a genuine one. You see, there's a reason why St. Paul in Romans chapter 6 uses the imagery of water to speak to us, to speak of us being baptized into the death of Christ and of us being united to Christ in his resurrection. That's the reason why throughout the Christian tradition, the story, and also the earlier tradition for that matter, the story of the Exodus The Israelites passing through the waters of the Red Sea. Why it has always served as an image of resurrection. Of entry into a new kind of life. This story of Moses leading the people of of Israel out of Egypt has functioned all through history as the paradigm of what redemption means, what liberation means, what freedom means, and therefore also of what resurrection means. The Exodus story is a story that speaks to us of a people being raised from the dead. Exodus story is a story of resurrection. When God raises his people from the dead, he no longer allows them to sink back into the mud of their own unregenerate existence. He has brought them into the promised land. This is Jesus' point. If God has truly been faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, if God in Exodus 3 mentions them no fewer than three times to show Moses that he can and will raise also the Israelites out of slavery, well, then these three patriarchs had better be alive. Only if they themselves have passed from death to life. Only if they themselves have escaped their suffering and have truly arrived in the promised land does it make sense to hold them up to the Israelites 
as an example of the faithfulness of God in bringing his people through the exodus into eternal life. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive in the presence of God. All God's saints who have gone before us, Rita, other friends and family members that we miss, they are alive in the presence of God. Yes, they are waiting for the resurrection, but they are alive in the presence of God. With that conclusion, Jesus opens up our imagination. He opens it up to the power of God. A power that brings a kind of life so different from our existence here today that only by comparing it to the life of angels do we even come close. Resurrection glory will shatter our wildest of dreams. And Jesus opens up our imagination also beyond the storyline that we find in the scriptures. The Sadducees cannot see beyond the basics of the story of the burning bush. But Jesus looks for the love of God revealed in the depths of the text. And he tells you and me also God's faithfulness will shatter our wildest of dreams. Shall we pray? Good Lord, we adore and praise you for who you are. We give you thanks that we may count on you, that we may always come to you knowing that you have already come down to us in Jesus Christ. How good you are. Oh Lord, help us to hold on to your promises. Help us to hold on to who you are. To not let go knowing that you don't let us go. Gracious God, we put our trust in you. And when that seems impossible to us, Lord, will you continue to hold on to us? Guide us, therefore, this day with your love in Christ. Guide us throughout this week with your Spirit leading us on and bring us too into the promised rest of eternal life. We pray this in the name of our dear Lord, Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit is one true eternal God forever and ever. Amen.